Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Do you want to bulletproof your practice? Be able to take care of and service more clients over a continuum of many more demands rather than being a one-trick pony, so to speak, being able to manage whether it's an athlete or client's injury issues, handle some of the pain that they're dealing with, and at the same time help them succeed in performance and be able to do any of the different goals that they aspire to do. It's important uh, in this day and age with uh, the changes in our economy and the things that are happening right now that we have more diversity in our ability and skills. And that's what reconditioning is all about. It's about the continuum of practice from the point of where you may be injured or dealing with pain and going all the way until you return to uh, the specific performance or activity that you want to do. That's what reconditioning is all about. It's not a rehabilitative practice. It's not a performance practice. It's a hybrid integration of these two models that allows you, the practitioner, to explore all the different elements of what your clients may need you for. And it allows you to see a more uh, explorative and expansive clientele and to really be able to solve problems that maybe you couldn't solve before. So I invite you in the coming year to explore reconditioning. Our course calendar is out for 2023. We will be in a theater near you to help you rise to the next level. So take a look at our course calendar, www.reconditioninghq.com today, and join the reconditioning revolution. Our main sponsor, Matrix Fitness, has recently launched its high school and collegiate development program. Customized to each group, these are two-hour workshops designed to support the busy teacher and coach in implementing modern training principles. These workshops are funded by Matrix and designed to address three areas. Simple, not easy, implementing strength conditioning in high school or collegiate settings. Improving multi-directional movement and coordination. And finally, putting the fun back into fundamentals, simplifying physical education in the weight room for all. Each workshop includes notes, session samples, and templates to help support implementation, as well as equipment and space assessment and budget allocation ideas to support programming. The workshops are all led by Wayne Burke. He's a former pro lacrosse athlete and 23-year veteran of training athletes of all ages. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment supplying and supporting organizations and athletes of all sizes and levels in their pursuit of improved performance. If you want more information on this program, then contact Wayne Burke, B-U-R-K-E, at matrixfitness.com. And if you want more information about the products and programs of Matrix Fitness, hit up matrixfitness.com today. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston. If you've been paying attention in the human performance field recently or in the last number of years, you've started to recognize more and more research that has come out on the neurology of the human body and how our brain and neurological system operate. And this neuroscience underpinning is starting to really perpetuate itself into the mainstream of performance and medicine and all the different areas is that uh, it really implicates itself in. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, the neurological system is the overreaching governing system of the body. And once we understand that it is the center point of most of the issues we deal with when it comes to uh, health and well-being issues, um, and we recognize that we have to start considering it, whether it's in our performance training or in our rehabilitative process, uh, a lot of things change. And uh, these days, 
were searching for the right voices in this space. I searched for the right voice in this space to support what we were doing in reconditioning. I knew that reconditioning was missing a piece, missing our ability to really train from the neck up and to really understand how that part of the body was most implicated in movement, movement quality, and movement redesign. So I searched for the right party to integrate with and connect with, and I found that party in a gentleman named Matt Bush. Matt runs a company called Next Level Neuro, and they are doing some cutting-edge things in the world of neuroscience. And I've had him on the podcast to learn about his career and his life, and you can check that podcast out on uh, the Levy Mark podcast site. But today I invited him to come back and to talk really about neuroscience and to entertain you hopefully for the next hour and give you some insights into the world of neuroscience and all the things that uh, we're starting to understand more and more about how the human body works. So have some fun with today's podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. Today I have uh, the wonderful honor of having a good friend of mine back on the podcast, Matt Bush. Matt and I had a great conversation probably almost two years ago now um, about his career. uh, So you can look back in the litany of... uh, of PCs that I've done in the past to get more background on Matt. But uh, welcome, Matt. It's great to have you here this morning, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be back, Scotty. Yeah. Um, For the listener, you know, I wanted to have you back because you and I have uh, started to work together a lot. Um, You're bringing uh, neuroscience into reconditioning and are working with you guys on your applied neurology mentorships and all the different things that we've been doing the last few years. And I just felt it would be really great for our listenership who are all in human performance to get, you know, more of this neuroscience. And who knows, maybe this will be the first in in, in several that we'll do to sort of enlighten the listenership a little bit because everybody out there I think needs some of this information but maybe give the listener a little bit of your background just so they understand you know where you're coming from and what makes you and call it an authority or an expert in this in this area of uh, of the world today yeah for sure um so I tell people I'm in the world of neurology but clearly on the coaching and training side not the medical side Uh, And that was done very intentionally because um, all the way back in 2004, when I got started in neuro, uh, neurology training or applied neurology really of any kind was kind of still the Wild West. There Mm -hmm. were no regulations, no rules, no acknowledgement or acceptance from any kind of insurance policy virtually anywhere in the world. Um, And even the medical side of it was still kind of scratching their heads going, what do we do with this functional neurology stuff? You know, because traditional neurology is all about putting you under a brain scan, like a CT scan or a functional MRI, looking for lesions, which could be a cyst, a tumor, a TIA, something that they can basically operate on or medicate, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the treatment model. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's, I mean, this is not about me, but what's really interesting is about 33% of people who go in to see a functional, not a functional neurologist, a traditional neurologist, they leave with a diagnosis that's Mm -hmm. called a functional neurological deficit, which means we can see that functionally you're having a problem, but nothing's showing up on our brain scans. We don't know where it's coming from. Hmm. And when you get that diagnosis, it's really tough because the medical world is basically washing their hands of it and going, sorry, there's not much we can do for you. So back in 2004, when we start this journey, um, you know, the, the functional neuro world was just just entering the world of training and, and whether that's athletic training, high performance training um, with athletics, strength um, even pain relief. And so, uh, I did my original education with a company called Z health education or Z health performance solutions is the full name of the company. Um, and they had done a really good job of kind of carving out this niche for themselves in the training world where, you know, if there's strength coaches, performance coaches, athletic coaches, that are all working on the human body biomechanically. The question was who's working on the human body neurologically, right? If the nervous system is in control of all of those biomechanical systems, why are we not training that? 
And you and I have both adopted that language in the last 20 years of let's not just keep training athletes from the neck down, right? Mm. Like, let's train neck up and see what happens. <laughs> um, so, so anyway, um, I've been around since 2004. I really got into neurotraining as an athlete myself. I was, I think I told this story on our original podcast, but mm-hmm. I was, you know, 22, 23, had a couple knee surgeries, sprained ankles, wearing braces to every activity I did. And once I got introduced to neuro, basically I was able to give up the bracing and never had any more pain. Mm. And I could perform on back-to-back days or at a really high level and just didn't have to worry about it anymore. And that's mm. really when my eyes were open to go, hey, there's there's something to this. I need to investigate further. Mm-hmm. So I essentially put in like... 10 years of education of learning neuro and, and kind of mastering the application. Um, I taught all around the world, um, taught neurology courses for personal trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors, um, you know, physios basically. So they could all learn how to use neuro with their clients or their athletes to get better results. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, um, well, that's where, where our worlds intersected. And, um, for the listener, I mean, one of the things the listener will know that, um, my wife and I teach a a concept called reconditioning and, uh, it, it has a, call it a biomechanical sort of underpinning and structure, but it's really about bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together. But I always knew, and even in the lectures and presentations, I talked about this, you know, input interpretation loop and output loop that, the you know, we're constantly, the brain is constantly interacting with and in, in, in time and space and, and making us move and do the things we do. But the interpretation side of the animal was kind of like this, you know, black box. And I knew that. And so, you know, I was introduced to you through various means and then, you know, had, you did a really cool um, nine part workshop with uh, our mentor, Brian Grasso on the neuroscience of mindset. And I thought that this, you know, I listened to you and I was really impressed with your thought process and all of this stuff. And the reason why I introduced this, this to the listener is what I want people to understand when we get finished today is that, you know, the psychology that we talk about all the time and then the physiology and they're, they're met in the middle by this neuroscience and they are all commingled and people sort of, we try to dis, dissociate them rather than associate them and they should be all sort of living together in essence. And that's what, what struck me when I got to listen to you. I was like, God, I got to get this guy in my world and working with us to bring this neuroscience material into reconditioning so we would better deliver what it was that we wanted to do with the, the client. And the thing, and this is where I want you to splinter off, the thing that struck me so much is, and you kind of talked about it before, is from a neurological standpoint, it seemed like the only time anybody would do anything about the neurology was when it was sick. It was broken. So you had a diagnosis, like you said, of something, and this is broken. But the idea of optimizing training, um, you know, just like, you know, I have a, a weak bicep, so I do, uh, you know, some strength training. Why can't I have a weak vestibular system and I do some vestibular training to support what it is I'm doing? So that's where I was like we need to be training from the neck up, so to speak. So tell the listener sort of what, in your mind, why is it that this has been so taboo in some sense and hasn't been mainstreamed in some sense? And now that you're helping mainstream it, you know, what do you want the listener to understand that they need to embrace a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, (laughs) part of, Part of why it's been so taboo is why anything that's that's new is taboo, especially in the world of high-performance training or, or high-level athletics. Uh, you know, there's, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to step on a couple toes, but there's a lot of tradition and, you know, this is the way it's always been done that happens in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, I've had success for a really long time, so we're going to keep doing it my way. Um but I can't, I don't fault people for that. I think mm-hmm. every, every coach, every trainer who's working with a team or with individual athletes, of course, they're doing the absolute best they can with the knowledge they have. So I don't fault the industry. I actually fault the lack of education. 
Mm-hmm. That in the educational programs that we've been going through for the last 40 years, there hasn't been any neuro- neurology included. Um, partially because uh, the information just wasn't available. Um, uh, you know, when you actually go back and look at the number of published studies and research in this area, uh, we know we've learned more about the brain since about 2005 than we ever knew in the history of the world prior to that point. Mm-hmm. So first of all, for anyone who did any kind of education prior to 2005, there was probably zero neurology, at least on a functional applied level, right? There may have been some neuroanatomy or some, um, you know, cursory neuroscience that they had to take as part of a program, but not really how to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, in most research, there's about a 15 to 20 year filter effect where it takes that long, right? An average of 17 years for science that's been done in a lab or in a research study to make it into the hands of frontline practitioners, coaches, and therapists. Hmm. 17 years, right? Um, and so you go 2005 to, oh, that's 2022. That's right now, right? <laughs> so, so we just look at those two things and go, well, no wonder most of the world hasn't heard about this, mm-hmm. right? It, mm-hmm. it hasn't made its way into mainstream education programs, universities, master's and doctoral degrees, functional programming. Like none of it is even heard of. None of those groups have even heard of like applied neuro and how can we use that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's why it's been missing, right? Mm-hmm. The taboo comes just because it looks weird. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you uh, think about how there's a quote, um, and I'm, I just lost the name, a science fiction author um, who says any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. Right. Um, I've had the, the name and I just lost it, but... Um, the idea is, you know, you're using a system that you really can't see because it lives inside of someone's head. Mm-hmm. There's no way to scope it out with a scan or to see it on an individual, like, neuron level, at least not for a day-to-day practitioner. Mm-hmm. And yet it's making these significant changes, and yet we're kind of left scratching our heads going, why did that happen or how did mm-hmm. that work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the interesting thing, too, about this that I find um, probably challenging for people when they get invested in it was for myself is there's not actually a, a, a direct link between um, stimulus and response. So right. you, you, in, normally when you're training, in, in essence, you provide a stimulus to overload and the response is the system goes, okay, I'm going to get stronger or I'm going to get faster or what have you. And so there's always yeah. been this sort of direct link. But in the neural world, you start to commingle with all of this kind of how the brain interprets information. And so, and, and all that is based on history, experiences, uh, different expressions, all these, call them neurotags that you will maybe elaborate on, that kind of filter and define, the system filters and defines information. And so, therefore, one stimulus that works for one person or creates a change will not for another, and one that works for one side of our body will not for the other. And so, then things kind of become a little bit more head-scratchy. That's what I, that's what yeah. I kind of interpret from it a little bit. Do you... Do you see that and how do you sort of, um, you know, elaborate on that thought a little bit? I do. And I'll I'll elaborate, but let me go back a step into something that you said, where you talked about typically the biomechanical model is based on the stimulus and response kind of framework. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's what we all acknowledge. And yet sometimes even that doesn't work. Right. You're like, it it works like this, except when it doesn't. Because uh, the stimulus response model is typically going to be successful for about 80% of your clients or 80% mm-hmm. of your athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20% of the total is going to be like super responders who get an, just an amazing response to the stimulus. 60% live somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. But then you get that bottom 20% who you're applying the same stimulus that the textbook says you're supposed to apply, mm-hmm. and they're getting worse. Right. They're not getting stronger, faster, leaner. They're getting 
slower, weaker, and fatter by doing the same training. (laughs) And what has happened over the years is that practitioners and therapists who, who are trained in that model, rather than question the model, we've tended Mm. to blame the client. Right. Oh, they're not being compliant. Oh, they're not using the, the correct nutrition. Oh, you know, they're not doing the recovery they need to do. And we're blaming the client rather than turning the magnifying glass back on the programming and the process and going, maybe there's an issue with the process. Right. Mm-hmm. So that interpretive filter that you referred to is actually the reason why all of that occurs. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a great study that was published probably oh, a decade ago at this point um, called Combined uh, results or responses to combined strength and endurance training. It's originally done in Denmark um, and then reproduced basically like in Germany, Canada, United States on all these different research teams with virtually the same results. And when they take this group, they put them through 21 weeks of combined training of strength and endurance, like VO2 max training. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to answer the question, can we train both at the same time? Right? Because classically what we've learned is You should do your strength training during one period and then your VO2 max training in a different period. Right. So they're trying to figure out, can we stack them? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So they take a a group of 175 people who are counted in the final result to be counted. They had to be 95% or greater compliant with the training and nutrition. They do the training over 21 weeks that split into three sets of seven weeks each. Right. So they reassess and adjust the programming every seven weeks. So at the end of the whole thing, which is approximately five months, about 16 to 20 percent of the group has this amazing response, super responders. 60 percent of the group has a normal response and 20 percent of the group has a response that they quantified as minus eight percent stronger, which means (laughs) they got weaker, weaker, yeah. right? <laughs> and they did all of the, the normal standard periodization, reassessments, changing the programming, like let's do everything we're supposed to do. And yet they still got 8% weaker. Mm. And what, what was really interesting about this study is that when it hit the, the publication rounds and the PR, you know, basically uh, uh, other researchers and scientists and even the media picked up on this idea. Well, maybe these people are just, genetic non-responders to exercise. Hmm. And when that hit, like it, it just left me flabbergasted, like scratching my head going, I'm sorry, genetic non-responder. Like that means <laughs> I'm, I would be genetically incapable of responding to stimulus. Hmm. Like if that were true, I would probably already be dead. Right. <laughs> like, the human, the human body is always responding to stimulus, hmm. whether it's on an observable threshold or not, whether it crosses that threshold of observation. So these people, it's not that they did not respond, right? They actually responded in a negative way. Hmm. And so the question it begs is, well, why did that happen, right? And that's where I think the nervous system comes in to answer this question that you posed. Mm-hmm. It's not just stimulus response, there's a layer of interpretation about how am I going to respond to the given stimulus? And the primary answer to that question has to do with the concept of the perception of threat, right? So this is where neuro kind of enters the picture and where we started two years ago Mm -hmm. is to say, if our brain and nervous system's job is to keep us alive, if that's its number one priority, It primarily does that by trying to detect threats within the environment, either the external environment or the internal environment. And when there is a a great enough perception or or perception of a great enough threat, it's going to engage in some type of protective behavior. Some protective Mm -hmm. mechanism is going to kick in that keeps me safe, right? In a life or death situation, that might be a fight or flight response. Uh, in a less than life or death situation, it might be excessive tension, uh, weakness, like governance of force production by the nervous system where it turns down muscle activation. It could be dizziness or vertigo. It could be fatigue. And there can also be psychological protective mechanisms like anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So 
these are all things that the nervous system can enact when it sees that we're in danger and it wants to protect us from the environment, right? So essentially it's going to choose protection and survival before it ever chooses the, uh, you know, creating high performance, Mm -hmm. right? Survival over performance is the way that we're wired as humans. Mm -hmm. So when you put this idea of threat into the model, you go, okay, now that changes things, right? That's your, your thermometer or that's your lever that's kind of swinging back and forth. Like, am I going to get a great response or am I going to protect myself? Mm -hmm. So those minus 8% responders from the research study, probably what happened is their nervous system judged the stimulus as too threatening, right? Like their brain is thinking, I'm not going to be able to respond to this. It's too much. I can't adapt. If I keep going, the stimulus is going to injure or kill me. So I need to stop the adaptation process and I need to actually engage in the protective mechanism process. Hmm. And when they do that, it changes the, the physiological adaptations that occur. Mm-hmm. So rather than engaging in, you know, your typical muscle building, protein synthesis, hypertrophy, increasing force production, which is what we want, that body of that human goes, nope, I'm going to start releasing more cortisol into the system. I'm going to decrease protein synthesis. Um, I'm going to start storing fat, you know, uh, basically protecting myself, stabilizing my metabolism, not overindulging in this energy expenditure to, to train and rebuild muscle. I want to conserve all of the caloric energy I possibly can. I don't care if it makes me weaker. I need, just need to make sure that I'm going to be able to stay alive. Mm. Right. And, and obviously I'm kind of putting words into the mouth of that nervous system at the moment, but it's just so that we can kind of build out the picture of like, why would that happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A nervous system that's under threat is going to protect itself rather than continuing to adapt and thrive. Mm -hmm. Let's elaborate on that threat piece, because that's where I also find that the, for the listener, the, the call it the, the psychology of this and the physiology sort of intertwine is, you know, Let's take let's take the example of the athlete who sprained their ankle in a certain cut, you know. So they they were cutting to on the right foot going left and they sprained their ankle. There's kind of this memory neurotag that become, becomes existent in the brain that creates this sense of I'm in threat if I go to cut on that right side foot. And so then it changes the neuropsychology of that moment, but there's also a neurophysiological effect, et cetera, all going on. So sort of paint the picture of this idea of threat for people, because I think we all understand it in what we feel, but we don't understand it on the science side of it. So it's like when you bring that, I think that's what really, you know, clicked for me and clicks for the listener in essence. Yeah, for sure. I think in order to do that, we have to bring in another word, which is Mm. prediction. Mm. So the way that the nervous system does this kind of survival assessment is not in a descriptive way, looking at the current moment or at what just happened in the previous moment. Mm. Rather, it's a predictive process where it's trying to look into the next moment that will happen in the future Mm. say, am I going to be safe in Mm. this environment or in this situation? Right. And so um, to to arrive at an accurate prediction, and it doesn't matter if the prediction is that I'm going to be safe or I'm going to be unsafe, right? Remove safe, unsafe for a second. Just just talk about the predictions with me. Mm. To arrive at an accurate prediction, what our nervous system utilizes is the incoming, the current information, Right, current info, plus our previous experiences. So it's like a little equation, right? It goes mm-hmm. current information mm-hmm. plus previous experiences equals prediction. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of comparing what's currently happening and going, have I been in a situation like this in the past? Right? Last mm-hmm. time I was here, what happened? Was I safe or unsafe? Mm-hmm. This example that you gave was like, well, last time I was here, I sprained my ankle. So do I want to go through the same action? Of course not, 
right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to reproduce that injury. I wouldn't want to go through all of that recovery and rehab and possibly surgical procedures. Like that would be terrible. Right. So I'm going to try to avoid the the consequences that I had in the past by not recreating the same action in the present. Mm. Right? So I, I created kind of an avoidance behavior or an avoidance attitude. So now there's a sense of fear or trepidation that comes around making that hard left cut because I don't want to roll that ankle again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are the two big ones, current information and previous experience. Our brain will also take into account like our cultural upbringing. Um, And there's a few things here. Cultural upbringing is one. Right, which is like what kind of what type of culture were you raised in in regards to pain and injury or the perception mm-hmm. threat? Right, if you were raised in a very safe environment and every time there was a threat, some adult in your life came in and swooped in and took care of it, or swooped in and took care of you, there may be a sense in which you're a little bit less resilient to threat as an adult mm-hmm. because you never had to live the life of hard knocks, as we might say, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, someone who grew up in a threatening environment, whether that means physically unsafe, emotionally unsafe, or even just an uncertain environment, Mm -hmm. um, like not the same access to resources, they will have developed a sense of resiliency, not on purpose, but because that was just what was needed to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's going to create a difference in how their brain interprets. Is this environment threatening or not? Right. Right. So if we sort of slide into that neurophysiological world and we talk about, you know, I I love the analogy or metaphor you use when we talk about the satellites of input information. So, you know, you've got the proprioceptive systems telling your brain where you are in time and space, your visual system and your vestibular system. And they're kind of, co-relating information almost to a central gps to sort of define where your hand is where your foot is where your knee is etc based on that information coming in so there's kind of an expectation in in the perfect world that the information that's coming into the brain is perfectly defined from those three satellites then the interpretive mechanism is going to interpret this in the way it should interpret it and then create outputs but there's kind of two flaws in that equation one is is the input information actually good and are the three satellites telling us the same thing and then how is it being interpreted based on what you just talked about which is previous you know previous historical information what do i think i am now and that predictive equation so you know elaborate on that three satellite concept and where things kind of get blurred as you'd like to describe it a little bit quick break here we'll be back with our guest in the last three years the already powerful practice of reconditioning which brings the worlds of therapy and performance together has been upgraded with an integration of applied neurology it now is one system that brings these three worlds together in a very powerful operating system that will turbocharge your practice If you really want to change your practice, be able to take care of more clients and get better and more long-lasting results, we'd recommend you come and visit Reconditioning today and join the Reconditioning Revolution. It will change the way you practice. What do universities... Colleges, municipalities, first responders, hotel guests, athletes, gym owners, rehab specialists, condo developers, and over 3,500 homes in Canada have in common. They all use Matrix Fitness Equipment to support their physical activity needs. Matrix is a global brand that recently celebrated its 20th anniversary and can be found in most local facilities in your community. For more information on how Matrix can support your goals, go to matrixfitness.com today. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Yeah, so so those three satellites that you mentioned, vision, vestibular, proprioception, those were selected to, to talk through this idea because those are the, we call them the neural hierarchy, mm-hmm. but they're the, the, the of greatest importance for the brain in, especially when we're talking about in regard to movement and postural control. So, so this was built intended to be training athletes and clients, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about all survival systems here. 
Because mm-hmm. you could describe any system of the human body as a survival system. Right. But especially with the control of movement and posture, these three are at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So to have good quality movement in a sport or in a demanding environment, I have to have accurate information from these three systems. And I have to have the ability for my brain to interpret that information well and integrate it all Mm -hmm. three together with the plan of where I want to be going. Right. So if we're not getting good, accurate information, that might be because of a previous injury uh, like a head trauma could could damage part of the vestibular system and throw off my balance. Um, if I've had some type of viral infection or was prescribed a medication that falls under this umbrella term called ototoxic medications that could damage the inner ear, any of those things could affect the vestibular system. So my vestibular inputs to the brain are no longer balanced and accurate. But basically what that means is I'm not getting a good sense of where is the force of gravity. Mm. So if I can't relate to gravity, it's going to be really hard to sprint, jump, cut, you know, strike a ball while standing on one foot. You know, all of these things that are required in different sports, they become excessively difficult if I can't orient and oppose gravity Mm -hmm. or or not easily. Um, Visually. We all think of, oh, I have great vision because I went to the optometrist and they said, you know, it's it's 2020. My vision's perfect. Um, but visual acuity, which is what we test at the optometrist, is, is one of about 25 different visual skills that we need as athletes. Hmm. We also have to be able to track objects in space, track a moving object while we are moving, switch between different targets, change distances. Um, all kinds of cool stuff. So there's there's visual clarity or acuity, but then there's also all the other ones. And so if if there were an injury to an eye or a congenital issue or even a functional deficit where just both eyes don't work that well together as a team, hmm. we're going to suffer in our athletic performance because... We can't move at the speed or with the confidence that we normally would be able to. Mm-hmm. Right? And then proprioceptively, we choose that one because that's all about where where are my limbs, where's my body in space? What are they doing? How much load are they currently under? Right? What angles and vectors are they moving through? Mm-hmm. So that's really all about like coordination and bodily control. And again, for an athlete, that has to be on really on point and integrated with their balance, their vision, their timing and rhythm and the plan of action to make that very high level movement occur. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's all to say the systems have to be accurate and where we start with most of our clients is let's assess the individual systems to make sure that they're providing accurate input. Mm-hmm. Right. Then there's the question of, can my brain receive, interpret, and integrate those systems correctly so that I have a good picture of where I am, right? So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the satellites and the GPS, and that's the analogy that we use. So the three systems are the satellite, right? Your brain is the GPS computer itself, mm-hmm. whether that's in your car, in your phone, right? So you could be getting great information from the satellites, but if there's a problem with your little GPS computer that's in your car, your that GPS is going to be telling you, like, uh, I don't know where I am, right? It's going to go recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Mm-hmm. And it will spend, like, you can imagine driving down the freeway, you're doing, you know, 60, 65 miles an hour. That's probably like 700 kilometers an hour for those of you in Canada. <laughs> I'm not very good at math. Right, but you're you're going down the freeway and your GPS suddenly loses its signal, you could potentially travel a large distance very quickly before your GPS knows where you are in space, right? Mm. So on a road trip, that means you miss your exit and you have to go the long way around. Mm-hmm. In movement, if you're moving quickly or with great force, and your GPS loses track of where you are in space, 
it means that you're kind of lost in space. You're moving blindly or you're moving without uh, information about gravity or you're applying force through a joint that you don't really know where that joint is located or how it's currently aligned. Hmm. Those are, those are dangerous movements, right? Mm -hmm. And so because they could incur danger or they could be injurious, our nervous system views any movement that's not located well in that GPS, like those kind of lost in space movements, they're very unpredictable so our nervous system would view any of those movements as a threat to our own body. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anytime the satellites go offline or give inaccurate information or anytime the brain can't integrate all the information together, it makes our movement in our environment less predictable and being less predictable is in and of itself a threat. Mm hmm. And it's interesting just listening to you. I just want to splinter off that really quick, going back to your analogy of driving your car and sort of there's the expectation that that GPS is telling you where you're going to be. And when you look down, so I just want the listener to hear this. When you look down and it's offline and you don't know where you are right now, what's what happens to you physiologically? You feel threatened. So what happens? You get anxious, you get stressed, you get nervous, you, you, you feel disoriented. That's what your brain's dealing with when it doesn't know exactly where your hand is or where you are, et cetera. That's threat, right? So just for the listener to understand this idea of how they commingle, they they are one and the same, like this essence that, you know, your brain is trying to geolocate all the time when it doesn't actually trust what's going on, it gets threatened, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and for most people in this industry, they've experienced and trained enough movement that their proprioception is typically pretty good. Mm. Um, there could be exceptions if there's been a major injury or uh, a series of surgeries that had to happen or something like that. But most high level athletes and teams we work with have decent proprioception, but it's often that we find visual and vestibular systems have never even been assessed. Mm -hmm. That's where the gold is just sitting on the table waiting for you to pick it up. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where uh, as a coach, trainer, therapist, whatever, like you're literally looking at a gold mine of performance improvement that no one has ever tapped. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we make amazing changes in athletes sometimes. And they're like, wow, how did you do that? It's like, well, consider it this way. If you took all the strength training that you've ever performed and how your body has changed in your body composition and your force production and your speed and agility and took all of that training and condensed it into a 30 minute period of time, right? Like we have a magic wand here. Obviously we're talking fantasy, right? Yeah. But take years of training, combine them into 30 minutes and then look at the results of the before and after the 30 minute period, right? You went from, little body composition, like just untrained body to high level of hypertrophy, higher level of force production, higher level of speed and agility in what appears to be a very short amount of time. That's kind of what's happening when you start to work with someone's vision or vestibular system. Mm. It's that, you know, it's never really been trained before. So you have a blank slate to work with. Right. You can come in or, 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 or an unformed piece of clay, right? And you can come in and you can start to train that very quickly uh, and very powerfully to create some amazing results, sometimes in as little as half an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it takes a little longer uh, because the truth is it's not an unformed piece of clay. It's not a fully blank slate. The truth is you have all of your previous experiences for all the time that you've been alive, right? Um. So my analogy breaks down at some point, <laughs> but there's still this gold mine available of no one's really ever trained this system. There's a, a massive capacity for adaptation, um, for, for performance improvement, because by addressing that system that no one else has ever looked at, we can lower that threat 
substantially by doing some pretty basic training exercises, as we lower the threat, the performance is going to improve. Or if we're on the pain relief side of things, pain is going to be reduced as well. Mm-hmm. Well, since you said pain for a second, let's let's open up the box there a little bit because you know this idea that um, one of the threat expressions that uh, that the brain produces is pain, and what we're getting is we're getting information from the periphery from nociceptors that are basically there to inform the brain of things that are potentially damaging to it. So it then interprets that and creates the pain output to shut things down or to inform the body not to move. So elaborate on that a little bit because there's been a lot of work on pain research in the last number of years. Things were sort of misinterpreted over time and things are getting better interpreted now. But what are we still not understanding or not recognizing about pain that we should be acknowledging in your opinion? Um, the, the biggest thing is that all, it's funny to say this, but all pain happens in your brain. Mm. Um, and first of all, so when I say that to my clients, they're like, wait, so you're saying it's all in my head? Like, well, (laughs) yes and no. (laughs) Okay. Mm. So on, on the neuroscience side, the answer is yes. Actually, it, it is a literal statement to say that pain happens only in your brain not in your physical body tissues. Uh, but on the relational side, no, like I'm not calling you crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think you're just making it up. Right. <laughs> but uh, what, what all this pain science and neuroscience research over the last 20 years has shown us is that pain is only created because the brain perceives a threat. Mm. Okay. So it, 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 pain doesn't exist because there's an injury. So pain does not equal injury. Injury does not equal pain. We need to be really clear on that, first of all. Mm -hmm. Um, And if if any of your listeners want a little evidence of that, do a quick Google search for the number or percentage of asymptomatic orthopedic injuries. And you can search for that within an athletic population or within the general population. You're going to find numbers between 50 to 80% of people have a, a gross orthopedic injury that you would be able to see on MRI. If they were having pain and they went in to see a specialist, they would probably be recommended surgery for these injuries. But they are completely asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. No pain, no changes in function. And you kind of have to scratch your head and go, why would that happen? Like they have a torn rotator cuff. They have a herniated disc. They have a torn meniscus. Why is there no pain? And ultimately, the only answer that the researchers have been able to come down to is it's because the brain really doesn't think it's a threat. Mm -hmm. Brain really doesn't care that much about it. It feels or thinks or perceives that that injury is not a problem for this person's ability to move, live, survive, do their job, take care of their family, etc. Okay, It, it hasn't ticked high enough on the radar or on the threat detector to need any kind of a protective response. Mm -hmm. Okay. So pain really only comes from the brain's perception of threat, not from injuries, not, you know, from any other like body tissues or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you, when you take that view on pain, uh, it, it really opens up the door for a lot of modalities or strategies for reducing pain that are very non-traditional. Right. Because what it means is if you can lower the perceived threat that this person is having by any means, their pain levels will decrease mm-hmm. because as soon as you lower the threat, pain goes away, um, which it kind of simplifies the process, Right. But it also can help to explain why some of our traditional pain relief modalities don't always work as well as we wish that they would or as as we were taught that they would. Mm -hmm. Because we were taught, you know, I need to go in and work on the injured area. I need Mm -hmm. to move it, massage it, stretch it, strengthen it, whatever the protocol is. Um, And 
what we often run into is that we go in and we start to work on or even around an injured area. Like maybe we're not going directly to it, but we're going to the joints above and below or we're going to the antagonistic muscle group or we're going to some kind of a functional motor pattern that we're going to work with um, in order to, you know, affect some kind of reciprocal inhibition or et cetera, et cetera. And we're doing all the right things according to the protocol, but it doesn't help the pain. Hmm. And we're like, geez, what's happening here, right? And if, if you're in the pain relief world or the therapeutic side of the world in this industry, those clients, when it doesn't work, those are the ones that kind of keep you up at night. It, it, like it tickles your brain and it frustrates you. And you're like, why are they not responding? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, the answer is there's still something going on in their world or in their environment or in their nervous system that's creating this ongoing perception of threat. It may not be the local area that they're complaining of having the pain. It may be something totally different, but the threat continues so therefore the pain continues. Right. Right. So in some senses, we need to broaden our horizons to look to other modalities or other options for reducing threat. In other cases, it gives us the opportunity to understand why do my tools not work sometimes as well as I think they should. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, there's something going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Even just very simply, we go back to the neural hierarchy that we talked about earlier. And typically, we've been working mostly with the proprioceptive system, the biomechanical musculoskeletal system. Those are all kind of synonymous terms. Well, that proprioceptive system is at the bottom of the hierarchy. Both vestibular and the visual system live higher on the hierarchy, which means they're of greater importance to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Their priority for survival threats. So I might have a visual or vestibular deficit that's causing ongoing threat for my nervous system, but it can show up as biomechanical pain, right? It could be low back pain. It could be neck pain. It could be uh, bilateral hamstrings that are always tight. My IT bands that are always bothering me runner's knee when I get out and exercise and all of those things we could potentially track back to like a vestibular issue is actually at the root cause of creating that threat. But the brain and the the body don't really have a way of making our vestibular system hurt. (laughs) Like (laughs) they don't feel pain. They feel dizziness, Mm. but they don't actually feel pain. So when it's kind of this low-grade threat that's continuing, like chronic threat, we don't get like a vestibular pain. That's not even possible. Instead, we get some kind of what feels like a biomechanical pain, like Mm -hmm. an IT band or a low back or a neck that's always cranky and bothering us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really expands our view of really what causes pain, You know, even at the beginning of this, you kind of said, well, in our traditional understanding, nociception, which we've always learned are like pain receptors, right? Mm -hmm. Send their message that there's some kind of tissue damage to the brain and then we have pain. Well, yeah, sometimes, (laughs) but we can also have non-nociceptive pain, pain that is not generated by nociceptive activity. Mm -hmm. So this like vestibularly referred pain would be one example of that. Um, neurogenic pain is an example of non-nociceptive pain. Um, sympathetic pain. So there, there's all kinds of different things that happen. But still, I don't, I don't want to spread too many lines into the water. I want us to come back to the idea that still all of those different types of pain are still controlled by the nervous system, by the brain, and if we can lower the threat, we still have the ability to make all those different kinds of pains reduce or go away entirely. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, to elaborate on that concept of threshold, like, and the di- individual differences element there, like, one person's pain is going to be somebody else's 
no, nothing's nothing's wrong kind of rea- reality and Absolutely. that's why these things are so different like nociception might be coming in but the brain because it interprets that as non-threatening it doesn't create pain or any other output that is negative ver- versus somebody else has a very low threshold of nociception is interpreted as a high degree of pain and right. that's kind of why we have these individual differences in in what people express or or feel right yeah absolutely that's amazing um i know you only have so much time so i want to sort of wrap or bring this puppy to a landing point but um when one of the things that kind of elaborates on this idea of those three systems and and there's them sort of being out of sync that we you know, sometimes talk about is just the idea of, you know, you being on a boat and getting nauseous. So maybe just elaborate on that a little bit so that people kind of understand what's going on uh, around that threat dynamic between those three systems. And that sort of elaborates for people, maybe the understanding that we need to pay more attention to those three systems. Yeah, sure. So before we go to the boat, let's look at an example of just walking down the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what these systems are doing, right? So when we're walking down the path, our visual system reports to our brain, we're walking down the path. And the way that it knows that, or it, it says that's the sensory input I'm getting, is that the scenery is kind of passing by our head as we move mm-hmm. forward, right? The trees or the houses or whatever, they're passing by us. So we can tell we're standing, we're moving forward through space. Mm-hmm. Our vestibular system, which senses our orientation and gravity, it also senses kind of our posture and our current stance, whether we're standing, seated, lying down, rotated. So it's going to report the sensory inputs of I'm standing, I'm moving forward through space, and it's also going to feel a little bit of this vertical oscillation that happens as we take each step in the gait mechanic or in the gait cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So vision says I'm walking, vestibular says I'm walking, proprioception, of course, says I'm walking because we have joint actions and muscle activation patterns that as we push into the ground, we'll propel ourselves forward in space, right? So walking, 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 brain goes, oh, cool, we're walking, right? It's very predictable because all of the sensory systems are basically sending the same information. Right. So you take the same person, put them on a treadmill, We're going to talk about treadmills before we talk about boats. (laughs) Um, So put them on a treadmill, and now my visual system says, I'm standing still, right? There's no scenery passing by my head. Mm -hmm. I'm watching a movie. I'm reading a magazine. But I'm certainly not moving through space, right? My vestibular system still feels that I'm standing, and it still feels the same vertical oscillation, but it doesn't feel any movement forward through space, So it's actually a little bit more like I'm bouncing on a rebounder than truly walking on a path, okay? Mm -hmm. Then your proprioceptive system is like, well, I'm kind of walking. (laughs) Uh, Because we still have the same joint actions, but the muscle activation is completely different, Mm -hmm. right? On the sidewalk, it's active hip extension that propels us forward. On the treadmill the hip extension is mostly passive because the ground is moving backwards beneath us. So the more active part of walking on a treadmill is actually the hip flexion to recover the foot and leg into the next gait cycle, Mm -hmm. right? So on the treadmill, you've got standing still, uh, bouncing up and down, kind of walking. (laughs) And so the brain is like, what the heck is going on? Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the areas that are integrating these input signals and even detecting threats, which are primarily your cerebellum and then your amygdala, well, the amygdala as that threat detection center, it's a non-cognitive, non-rational part of your brain. So it doesn't know what a treadmill is. All it really has to go on is do the signals all match up or do they not? Are they predictable mm-hmm. or unpredictable? And because they don't match, they're unpredictable – Right? It's like, I don't know which one to trust. Am I actually standing still so I can stop moving my legs? Well, that would be a bad idea, right? Am I walking so I can expect to move forward in space? Well, if I move faster than the belt is spinning, that would be a bad idea too, right? I would go crashing into the front of the treadmill. So when something unpredictable, the real problem is our brain doesn't know what input system to trust, 
So it doesn't know what to do next. Mm. Okay. So that creates what we call sensory mismatch. Mm -hmm. uh, in the research, you could look this up as like sensory integration disorder. Um, but sensory mismatch is the terminology that we utilize. Then let's go to an example of a boat and why would it create nauseous or motion sickness as a result? So if you're in the cabin of the boat, your visual system sees the inside of the boat, like nothing's moving, right? The clock is still on the wall. The cabinets are where the cabinet should be. The cushions are sitting still on the sofa. No problem. Uh, but your vestibular system is feeling all the movement of the boat as it shifts and moves on the waves and on the water. So your orientation and gravity is changing constantly, right? But your vestibular system and now your visual system are at complete opposite sides to each other. Your proprioceptive system is feeling your shifting of weight. It's feeling some joint action as that happens, but it's not actively doing any of those things. It's mm -hmm. all passive. So vision says I'm sitting still. Proprioception says my weight is moving around and vestibular is like, the world is ending. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> like everything is moving. We're in an earthquake. And so very unpredictable, very disconcerting. And, and so on the metaphorical side, we could say that that level of sensory mismatch is going to be very threatening. Hmm. And your brain wants to exit the environment as quickly as it can. Mm -hmm. So the threat response that your nervous system chooses is always going to uh, generate some type of action that it wants to either get more information or to get you out of the environment, hmm. right? If like it really wants to exit the environment, it's not going to give you excruciating knee pain because if you had knee pain, probably what you're going to do is just sit there and not move. Hmm. Well, that doesn't allow you to exit the environment. So that's not a good choice, right? But if I make you feel like you're going to get sick, you're going to want to get out of the cabin of the boat because you don't want to get sick in the boat. You want to get sick out of the boat. Hmm. Okay? Now, that's all metaphorical language. The truth is, physiologically, that because that vestibular system is getting so overworked with the constant changes of uh, gravity, that there is an abundance or a buildup of excitatory neurotransmitters that come from that activation of the vestibular system. And they start to spill over onto the vagus nerve, mm. uh, specifically the motor uh, nucleus of the vagus nerve, which lives in the brainstem. Uh, that motor nucleus lives right next to the vestibular nucleus. So when one gets really activated and excited, lots of neurotransmitters accumulate. Those neurotransmitters start to spill over onto the other nucleus. Under normal conditions, the only time that that motor nucleus of the vagus nerve would be that excited is if we had ingested something poisonous mm. and we need to give it back, right? I ate something that I shouldn't have eaten. I don't want it to stay in my stomach. I'm going to give it back from whence it came, right? So I'm going to vomit, get rid of that poisonous food that I've ingested. That's the normal response to a hyper excitation of that motor nucleus. Mm. So there's a physiological explanation for the actual nauseous feelings. Mm -hmm. But they started because I had the sensory mismatch that I couldn't figure out where all this vestibular input was coming from mm -hmm. because I was inside the cabin of the boat. Mm -hmm. If I were to get out of the boat, see the horizon, see the boat moving, feel the boat moving, now it all integrates well together, and my the unpredictable nature of that environment ceases. So now I understand what's going on, why is everything moving, and I can start to integrate. And so my nausea and motion sickness should start to decline at that time. Mm -hmm. It's not going to go away immediately, but slowly it will reduce. I love the way this finished because uh, you know you got to go. But just for the listener, again, when you listen to these two, these different examples, all in inside of that is all the threshold of historical response, etc. So that's why everybody's different. Some people will have a 
neurologically threatened response to that. Other people have trained or been trained or worked through or don't have that precipitating background that creates that threat response. So exactly. love the way we finished here, sir. I want everybody to know Matt runs a mentorship uh, in applied neurology that he's doing uh, that runs yearly. It's fantastic. You can look him up on Next Level Neuro. We just finished doing a year long with him and it was fantastic. So Maddie, let's do this again. Uh, huge, huge uh, outtakes from this and we can we could probably wax philosophic for hours, but thank you. I think so. Thank you, Scotty. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. After listening to this podcast, if you desire to know more about applied neurology, head over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our course profile. Through the three courses we offer, R1 Foundations, R2 Designs, and the R3 Collab, we integrate much of these concepts of applied neurology, making sure that you get greater results for your clients, taking care of the issues that are driving problems in the neurological system and the human body. Until you start training from the neck up, you're missing the boat. Take a look at reconditioninghq.com today. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.